Well, the season to be jolly is almost upon us, and what could be more jolly and downright good fun than the panto? Connemara-based theatre company Phoebean have a residency at Anthaviark, the National Irish Language Theatre, and are deep in preparation for this year's panto, Fionn, Agus and Bradon Fasa Fionn, and the Salmon of Knowledge here to tell us more about the show is director Seamus Hughes and the writer of the panto, Bridget Brahnach. Uh, Seamus, uh, uh, this is the second year since the pandemic that you've we've had Phoebe Sataviar giving us the, the, the pantomime. Um, this year Fiona Augustan Bradon Fasa. Is this is the 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 Irish language panto, is it a big tradition for the people of Galway? Hi Sean Kichotu. Um yeah, the the Taiviark the Taiviark panto is a big tradition, all right. You know, you'd have, have most Galway families would have some memory of childhood and being um, Portuch Safanto, as they say, you know. It brings like a lot of warm, fuzzy feelings for people. And uh, some, for some people, it might have been their only ma- major engagement uh, with the language, you know. And it's um, a kind of formational years and, you know, it's helped them foster maybe just a love and respect for it, you know. Um, and of course, having the crack outside of the academic environment mm. with your with your mates, it's just a you know it's a it's a great experience. So yes, the Tyvek Panto um, has been has a long and storied history in the city of the tribes. <laughs> <laughs> and yourself, uh, Bridget, it's not only with on Tyvek that you have a long family tradition in terms of uh, the Panto. In fact, your family tradition goes back to your dad acting Oscarliga all around Kunamara. Which was a community arts group in mm. Connemara, and they uh, he w- he would always play the baddie actually. <laughs> and um, you know, uh, we used to kind of laugh because we were never too scared of him. But uh, yeah, it's so much fun traveling around the Gaeltacht um, with with these uh, with these Irish language pantos. And when it comes to the Irish language panto, do we follow some of the old traditions? I mean, will I be shouting up or will my, the, the, those who are present be shouting up at the stage, Tiv Heerditch, Tiv Heerditch? Or will they yeah, be no, shouting, no, Go ahead, you'll be, you'll be put into the cooner, Donna. No, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, yeah, I mean, there's all of that, you know, that's half the fun, the, the, the you know, the audience interaction and the encouragement of, of, of that, you know, the, it's a very shaky fourth wall in uh, pantomimes. You know? <laughs> yeah, so there is a little bit of chance for, for interaction, I suppose, and, and fairly simplistic, or fairly simple uh, shouting up at, the, at those on, on the stage. The story that you're telling on Sgeil Tagots and Vlain Bridget now Fionn August and Brad on Fasa Ken Fawn Sgeil um, well, so either you can't let Philip Doherty of Phoebe's the when we first started to talk about the panto for, you know, Thaivyark mm. Nagalive, which is the National Irish Language Theatre, we thought, you know, wouldn't it be so brilliant to go back to our own Irish folklore? And I just thought that this story in particular was particularly fun for the panto because it has so many sort of mad and surreal elements to it. There's, there's Fionn and then there's the bad poet Fionn Agus, who's, um, you know, been travelling the length and breadth of Ireland trying to catch the Brodhan Fassa, the Salmon of Knowledge. And it's just led to a lot of, mm. I just thought the story had so much potential for fun. So that's kind of how we started thinking about it. Yeah, like, so so we have the, the young Fionn and then the, the old curmudgeonly uh, Feshti mm-hmm. he is in this in this realisation. So did you have to, were you, were you remembering your father as the, the baddie, <laughs> the villain in the panto all those years ago? 
I kind of was a bit because I, when you were just talking about interaction there, I just love the, you know, the interaction between the baddie and the audience mm. and the back and forth. And, you know, Feshti Donna is uh, so c- obsessed with the Brodon, the Salmon of Knowledge, that he's, his mind has become a bit addled, I think. And he's convinced that everyone is trying to, to get this salmon from him. And uh, he spends a lot of his time, you know, questioning the audience and, and wondering if maybe one of them are hiding mm. the salmon. <laughs> Call Willem, brother on Fasa. Call Willem, brother on Fasa. <laughs> yeah, I believe that, that will be one of the refrains that the audience will, will be shouting up. But Seamus, I suppose in some ways it's in, it's interesting what I think what Bridget has done with, with Feshti and maybe this was part of what you wanted in the show as well in that, yeah, he's a villain and we can all laugh at him. But he's a kind of a, he wants the Braddon Fassi, he wants all the land around the place, he wants all the fish around the place. So there's a kind of a capitalist um, story going on here as well, isn't there? An anti-capitalist rant. There kind of is, yeah. I might be guilty of that now. We've really leaned into that, you Mm. know. So um, Feshti, he has these visions of the future, you know, where he sees um, stretches of beautiful ring roads of tarmac stretched out before him, you know, and factories heating up the world with their, their beautiful smoke. And he loves the sound of engines and the coughing of birds. So, um, <laughs> you know, this is a, this is his uh, dystopian future. He doesn't quite know the details and the nuts and bolts, of, but the, eating the salmon of knowledge will take care of all of that for him. But yeah, he is certainly capitalist. He has a he has a song there where he reveals his, his true nature. Um but yeah, so he, so Feshti, he he would represent maybe um, the yeah that that side of things, the greedy nature. Um, but again, he's he's you know he, it's just that he doesn't know any better. Yes, and he has two his two wonderful sidekicks, Bridget. You might <laughs> you might tell me about them. Um, well, he's uh, Laddie Agus Ludermon, and um, you know they're they're um, they're his minions, and the poor things are always trying to impress impress Feshti and 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 uh, and do his bidding for him. So they're great crack. One of the things that I noticed quite early on is on Bradon Fassa isn't just some passive fish who's taken out of the river and stuck on the pan. Uh, on Bradon Fassa is a real character in here, Bridget. Yes, because, you know, when you think about it, like this is the salmon of knowledge and, you know, he would have to, I would just thought it must have been a very, very clever fish. And um, I just thought that uh, he maybe he has been hiding, you know, how would you know? How would you know that this particular mm. fish was the Bradon Fasa? And I think that he's been um, quite glick and uh, wily all these years hiding away from Feshti Donna and, and driving him mad. I love that he's called Feshti Donna. It's not just Feshti. Important that we have the Donna in there as well. But Absolutely. It's, it strikes me that when you have the Bradon Fassa as a, a character here, Seamus, and indeed the Phoebean style of theatre, which is so visual and can create all sorts of worlds, I believe there's an underwater world present in, in this well, panto. Well, you know, I mean, the uh, the brother on Fasa, his, you know, her name is in the title, so yeah, you know, and there's there's there'll be no mistaking our brother on uh, on stage, that's for sure. Um, yeah, she's maybe um, been no, hiding to, for you, quite a while. You, you're you're kind of teasing me with that. Why will I not mistake her on stage? Well, yeah, uh, she's. I'll put it this way: she's no wilting lily anymore. Um, she realizes that her destiny needs to be fulfilled because things are falling apart in the world with pollution. We've this, we've an environmental message. Um, we have Ashneem uh, Woods that we've sown through the through the show, and she knows she has to finally bite the bullet and meet her fate. 
Um, wow. But she's a, you know, she's a glass half full mindfulness type of salmon. <laughs> and, and so she's, she, she, you know, she decides, well, if that's her fate, Anyway, that's tomorrow's problem. Yeah, that's you know? it. That's, that's, and tomorrow, yeah. tomorrow will be another day to quote another great Christmas film. <laughs> in some way. Um, you have you've brought other characters in here as well, Bridget, which I think might come from you. You have a background in writing Skelta the Foshti, Lara the Foshti, Asquelaga. That background of, of writing in Irish for children has that the books has that fed into what you're doing here in terms of bringing in new characters to the to the piece. Yeah, because I think that, um, you know, I'm very mindful of the the fun element of it. And I suppose just um, a lot of the research that I did on the story, you know, to bring in the action figures of Beaumal and uh, Leah Luachra, um, who were in the original stories um, about Fionn McCool and, and, and actually raised him um, mm. in the forest. Um, so I just thought that they were very funny, could be very funny characters because, um, you know, there's a druid and a warrior woman living in the forest um, all these years and they they're kind of sick of looking at each other really. And, you know, they've these fantastic um druid skills and warrior skills and nobody really gives them the full credit for being as brilliant as they are. So um I just thought it's very it's very funny for for kids, I think, to see characters that are supposed to be sort of very high and mighty, mm. just doing silly things and being um, being a bit uh, unexpected in, what, in how they're behaving. Yeah, and, and Seamus, in terms of the casting then, you were saying how important it was for people uh, so you have t- a <laughs> professional cast along with 10 younger performers at the Tha show. We're so lucky to have such great little talents in Galway, you know, um, just what they bring, you know, it's, it's absolutely fantastic, really. And they're, so they're loving every minute, you know, um, and, and some really lovely performances as well from them. So we're, we're delighted. We're delighted to have them. And, and so we've got 10, 10 younger people mm. and then our, our senior cast then, um, Donoghue O'Cruilioch, um, Donoghue Crowley. Oh, yeah. uh, pe- pe- people might know from the likes of Father Ted and, mm. and such. Um, we have uh, Eilish Carey, who's, who's worked with Phoebe before and done some TV stuff. We've Blown It Daily, who's worked with Phoebe as well. So she's fantastic. And uh, Conrad Jones-Brangan, who we haven't worked with before, but he's our um, our film cool and uh, just 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 great energy and a love a love lovely um, chemistry between the lot of them and the children. So it's a lot of fun. August, big big Kjol Bio on fresh and Kjol Bio are in stature. Oh, bye, Kinsha. Yeah, so Banakjol Bio will lonely crack So the musicians will are our, our characters who are anxious to get up on stage themselves. It's everything we can do just to just to, to keep them keep them off keep them from breaking that fourth wall. But uh, they're they're eager beavers and they they create just a, a great great fun in the auditorium as well. So we're really looking forward to. Uh, We've looking forward to what people what people think there. Yeah, and I, I'm hearing from both of you just the sense of fun that there is, there is in it. I suppose for you, Bridget, writing um, comedy down on a on a page is one thing, and then you have to hear it delivered. Has it come to? Is it is it, what kind of feeling is it to to watch those potential jokes become reality on the stage itself? I'm so excited and looking forward to it. I'm very nervous as well, but I have so much faith and I just know that Seamus and all the cast and crew are just going to make something that is so 
magical and and fun. Um, so it's it is. It's just it's great crack um, to watch it all come to life. Well, listen, Gorimil Malhag of Berch just for going to that's uh, Seamus Hughes there on Stuart the director August Unscrivno Bridget Vrachnach uh, Bridget Vrachnach the writer of the panto Fion August on Bradon Fasa which runs at Taiviark Nagalva from the 7th through until the 17th of December and you can find out full details on on Taiviark.com You're listening to Tuesday Night's Arena It's strange because the idea is not there. And then suddenly the idea comes into your conscious mind and it comes in like an electrical spark. It may just be a fragment, but it could have implications to a whole world. It could be such a, an idea that it just pulls you, you know, and you want to go there. I'm discovered and become a movie star. Well, of course, I'd rather be known as a great actress than a movie star. But, you know, sometimes people end up being both. So that is, I guess you'd say, sort of why I came here. I had the strangest dream. You were there. And you. And you. Judy Garland there singing somewhere over the rainbow from The Wizard of Oz. And we also heard the voice of film director David Lynch explaining how inspiration comes to him in a kind of a dreamlike state, it would seem. Uh, why David Lynch and The Wizard of Oz? Well, screening all this week at the Palace in Galway and at the Lighthouse in Dublin is a documentary called Lynch Oz, which explores the links between one of America's most idiosyncratic filmmakers and one of Hollywood's most enduring classics, The Wizard of Oz, with us this evening to discuss the links between Lynch and The Wizard of Oz and maybe a few other things besides is Stephen Benedict. And we get to we get to the documentary presently, Stephen. Mm. But in fact, yeah, Oz is, Wizard of Oz is mentioned in lots of those films that we heard in the, in the midst of that clip. But you're bringing us further back to a real foundation myth, which is the foundation myth for many American, yeah. much American cinema. And you certainly think hugely important in the case of David Lynch. Yeah, I think in, sort of in terms of Western, the Western canon, I mean, The Wizard of Oz is a touchstone, but we're talking about Homer's Odyssey, really, mm. because Homer's Odyssey turns up in a whole host of films. You can look at it in The Searchers. You see it in Mad Max Fury Road. You even find it in Finding Nemo. And it's all about Odysseus's quest to return home. The Trojan Wars has ended and he's trying to get back to Penelope. And so these are all epic voyages which symbolise a, a displacement, right? A wandering and a perennial need to return home. So that's really the foundation myth upon which The Wizard of Oz is made. 
is based. Mm. Okay, Dorothy needs to return home. The thing that in the documentary is that it places um, The Wizard of Oz not only as the cornerstone of Lynch's films, but also the cornerstone of American films. Okay, well, let's look at then. It's important in Lynch's films, mm. undoubtedly, but you're saying that Homer's Odyssey is one of the big... Uh, yeah. So what, what about, and, and is it important in terms of Lynch's works and, and what other influences are there that are important for Lynch? He's mentioned loads of others. Yeah, um, Lynch isn't influenced so much by uh, Homer's Odyssey as he is by The Wizard of Oz, because The Wizard of Oz is a reshaping of it, just as O Brother Where Art Thou was a reshaping of uh, Homer's Odyssey, but it's Mm. not based on The Wizard of Oz. As you said, there are many different other films that have influenced Lynch, and he has paid reference to them time and time again in conversation and in interviews. So a a big one for him is Billy Wilder's Sunset Boulevard. Uh, another one would be Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo. Uh, you've got Fellini's Eight and a Half, which is about a filmmaker trying to make a film in the dreamscapes. Ingmar Bergman's Persona, for example. And then another one is um, uh, Stanley Kubrick's adaptation of Vladimir Nabokov's Lolita. And that's, you know, I'd like to do, if we can have time to do this, mm. Sean, I'm going to go off on a little bit of a tangent, is to focus a little bit on Sunset Boulevard, Vertigo and Lolita, because for me, they are help really to help organise our understanding of what Lynch's films are about. Some of the, one of the most overlooked themes, which is for me, the deep dismay he has for the way cinema has repeatedly mistreated women. And the most explicit example of that is in the TV show Twin Peaks. OK, well, I'll we'll certainly come back to that. Okay. But David Lynch isn't going to help us. <laughs> no, <laughs> understand what he's doing, no, is he? Never. No. No. Yeah, because you, you you gave me a clip which this is where uh, Lynch is explaining why he doesn't like explaining <laughs> his films. His films, which is fair enough. I always say the film is the thing. The film is the thing. It's the film. The language is cinema. You work so hard, and the second it's finished. People want you to change it back into words. It doesn't matter what I say. Zip. It can only be a negative, and it's very saddening. It's it's um, a torture. The more abstract a thing gets, the more varied the interpretations. That's the thing. The thing is built so you don't want to take anything away, and you don't want to add anything to it. It's complete. That's it. And that's it. You just come to your own conclusion. (laughs) Thank you very much for helping us so much (laughs) with that, David Lynch, and explaining how we should view your films. But I suppose for for somebody in your situation, Stephen Benedict, you know, when you're told, don't be explaining these things away, just let the film Mm. be be itself. Yeah, we've got to remember that David Lynch is a surrealist filmmaker. Um, so he's allowing us to interpret it because the entire idea of one of the ideas mm. of surrealism is to cut us loose from a centralised dogma. But the thing to understand about um, Lynch's surrealism, he's a very, very different surrealist than the, our original surrealists. Yeah, and if we, if we, that first clip that we heard about him in, in the midst of the montage at mm. the beginning of the item, he really talked about this kind of dream state. It's almost as if he just allows a trance yeah, that, yeah. That there's some, is that, is, is that a, a, maybe more of a key into his filmmaking than anything else well I think just to just bring it back to the, 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 the thing about the, the first surrealists right they were examining sexual neurosis and they were assaulting bourgeois sensibilities mm. and, but the thing was the early, the early surrealists uh, weren't exa- so much exploring sexual neurosis as a lot of their imagery was just simply downright misogynist and a lot of the, the, the sculptures and the, the, the canvases showed disfigured women. 
losing limbs, um, having no face, but the genitals were placed on the face and they're headless. And Lynch has got a completely different take on that. And his imagery is a lot more sympathetic to women. And it's also dream state as well. Now, this is okay, now, now you're going to come to Twin Peaks. I never thought that I'd hear somebody arguing that Twin Peaks was one of the great feminist tracks in terms of film or television making. OK, well, if we've got to take it into context. Um, when the show was aired in 1990, it was aired, it was billed as a detective show, mm. uh, um, trying to solve uh, the death of a young woman, the murder of a young woman. Laura Palmer, yeah. Yes. Now, as far back as the 1950s, when Lynch was a young boy watching TV, Every detective show solved the murder mystery in 48 television minutes. It was neatly wrapped up. And in solving the mystery, every show then ended up being about the ingenuity of the detective. And as a consequence, audiences lost sight of and were taught to ignore the victim to the point that they never remembered the victim's name. Okay, so you can see where I'm going with this. Most of the time then the victim was a woman and Lynch loathed that the woman's murder was just served as a catalyst to kickstart the show. So with Twin Peaks, he spent an entire season studiously not announcing the killer and thereby getting us to focus on the memory of the young woman. And he did that so well that 32 years later, you knew her name, Laura Palmer. That's fair enough. But I also, one of the enduring images from that series is the constant image of Laura Palmer's body in in the in the repose. In, in, yeah, you yeah. Know, like, is, is that not an objectification of of that person and of that body? No, I think there's. A, look, we've got to understand that Lynch's films are disturbing and they're challenging. Mm. But the thing is that here, instead of solving the mystery, uh, what Lynch got the audience, what the what got the characters to do was to constantly talk about Laura. So her memory was revived and sustained. And so then it starts to explore layers of grief. And the, the, we have the, the grief of the family that lost a daughter. We've got the grief of the students who have lost a, stu- a, a friend in school. And the town has lost a citizen. So mm. they're constantly harking back to who Laura was. Then we see her alive in video format. And they're playing through that. Now, admittedly, the, then the show starts to explore very, very dark sides of the town. And it's pulling back in the, in the Wizard of Oz sense, pulling back the curtain. But they're definitely venerating the memory of Laura. Yeah, and okay, to a certain extent, <laughs> I'm taking that on board. But if you look, it, it, I wonder, is he redressing something in his own work then? Ah. Because if you look at something like Blue Velvet, yeah. I mean, the sexual scenes in Blue Velvet are pretty horrendous. They and are. It is brutal. pretty much it is the woman as object. Yes, but I think the woman as object through the eyes of Frank Booth, played by Dennis Hopper. I don't think the movie is objectifying um, uh, Dorothy Valance's um, so you would say it's it's critiquing the yeah Dennis no Hopper it's character. it's interesting you should mention that because there's a very famous image from the scene in, in mm. Blue Velvet where Dorothy turns up naked on the front lawn in the film mm. and that is drawn directly from Lynch's own childhood he was living growing up in Boise Idaho as a young boy and he's on the front lawn in the house um, and then suddenly a woman he saw a woman running naked down the street blood pouring from her face now his younger brother John burst out into tears at the shock of seeing this. Lynch was shocked, but for a different reason, because he was wondering now, where did this violence come from? And so to use the vernacular again of The Wizard of Oz, the curtain was pulled back. So Lynch is exploring the darkness of it, but he's using light to shine on the darkness. We have a clip of of Lynch talking about his childhood. (laughs) With a childhood like this, it's maybe not surprising that he became the filmmaker that he became. When I was little, I would draw all the time. My mother... Uh, for some reason, refused to give me coloring books, which was a real blessing. My father would bring paper home from the office, and I would draw on that. 
And I never thought that drawing was something that an adult, you know, did. <laughs> but it was so much fun. It was so thrilling. But I thought it would come to an end. And then I met my friend Toby Keeler. And on the front lawn of my girlfriend's house, I met Toby, just not knowing that soon he was going to be stealing my girlfriend from me. But it didn't matter because that night Toby told me that his father was a painter. And at first I thought a house painter. But then I realized that he was a fine artist and it totally, completely changed my life. David Lynch does explain some things in <laughs> the odd time. That's yeah. an extraordinary piece. That's that's yeah. really, you know, reveals yeah. David Lynch to us. And that uh, idea that that was his first love, really. He, he wanted to be a painter. That's right. He actually went and not to... not a house painter. Yeah. Not a fine artist. Yeah, he, he, wanted to, he went to Vienna to study under Oskar Kokoschka, mm. the Austrian expressionist. And he had planned to spend there a number of years there. He returned after three weeks. It simply didn't suit his temperament at all. So we went back to the States. But the thing is, you can hear in his voice, Lynch has a very strong sense of Americana, but also he has a very strong sense of things that are going wrong within that imagery. And that's what I'm suggesting to you, mm. that in Twin Peaks, it seems to be idyllic and the, the, the evocative of a, a time gone by and nostalgia, but really it's just a nightmare because Twin Peaks, without a doubt, is a nightmare. Yeah, and, and also I think you, you would argue around the idea of the move from film to television, that mm. there was a time when that was, well, you went to television if your film career was over. Yeah. David yeah. Lynch David Lynch kind of set a marker, really. with He, he did, you know, but the amount of filmmakers who were direct, established directors now working in television, Martin Scorsese for mm. one, Steven Spielberg doing Band of Brothers and whatever, but it's also the shows that have been influenced enormously by Twin Peaks. I mean, you don't really get The X-Files without Twin Peaks, the long form of the, the, loss for the, the, the search for the lost sister, the Sopranos with the dream sequences, um, the entire show of Lost with its very, very long um, plot, plot arcs. So Lynch, as I was saying, is evoking an image of America's past, but it is not nostalgic. It's nightmarish. It's very, very unsettling. And, you know, I think what he's really trying to say is that if you belonged to a certain strata in society, if you were of a specific gender and it had a specific skin colour, life in the 50s was great. Americana is great for you. But if you're not part of that strata, yeah. life is violent, misogynist and bigoted. What about this uh, documentary then, Lynch Oz? I mean, it says it on the tin, really, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I, does does it draw does it draw good comparisons? I mean, you've you've s- several times in our conversation you've spoken about this idea that yes, like the Wizard of Oz, he's constantly drawing the curtain back yeah. on American society. Yeah. Is is it a is it a reasonable I think it's treatment a, of his work? It's a yes, it is. I think it's a good for, a good introduction for people who are not familiar with David Lynch's work to see where it's coming from. But I think it overstates the case. And the thing is that the case is very easy to prove because Lynch has constantly spoken about the Wizard of Oz as a touchstone, as a really really important piece. But I think once you start, if you're familiar with Lynch's films, you say to yourself, "Ah, there's more in Lynch's films other than the Wizard of Oz." And we've mentioned a few of them: hmm. uh, Sunset Boulevard, Persona, Eight and a Half, and Kubrick's work. So, in terms of this documentary, it's a good it's a good road into Lynch. It is, but the thing is, it doesn't lead you out, right? To be cheap about it, the thing is that it it, it says the Wizard of Oz is the only one there, and there's an awful lot more going on inside Lynch's films for that. And the thing is, there've been many many filmmakers who've been influenced by Lynch himself. I mean, even if you look at someone like Stanley Kubrick, Kubrick held Lynch in 
all. His very, very first film, Eraserhead, when, when um, Kubrick went to make The Shining, an adaptation of Stephen King's novel, he sat the entire cast and crew down to watch Eraserhead. He says, this, film. Yes, this is the touchstone. This, sorry, this is the tone of dread that I want to establish in this film. So if you have a filmmaker like Stanley Kubrick venerating David Lynch, you know that Lynch has got a lot more going on inside his work than the document yeah. would have us believe. Right, so it might give you some kind of an in, but if Lynch himself has said the film's the thing. So if you were to give somebody a film or would you send them to Twin Peaks, a, a way in via Lynch's own work? Where okay, would you tell well, I think as uh, audience friendly, I would begin with The Elephant Band because you can see that he really believes in virtue. He believes in moral order. He's not a misanthropist. He's not a misogynist. He really, really cares about the human condition. So The Elephant Man would be the introduction, I think. The Elephant Man is the starting point for you and you'll get something from Lynch Oz, but perhaps not enough, is I think what you're saying, Stephen. Is that fair yeah. enough? Okay, that's Stephen Bendick speaking to us about Lynch Oz, the new documentary on the work of filmmaker David Lynch. A compassionate chief inspector gets more than he bargained for in Prime Video's lavish atmospheric rendering of author Louise Penny's best-selling mystery series. The Canadian detective has been solving cases since 2005 in 18 separate books. But what exactly is going on in the cosy Quebec village of Three Pines? That is for one Armand Gamache and his esteemed crew of officers to find out. Troubling, unsolved disappearance hanging over his head. Gamache will need all the help he can get. Chris Wasser has been watching Three Pines and he's with me in, in studio this evening. Uh, the first two episodes have premiered on, on Prime Video at this stage. So what's the, the basic setup here, Chris? The basic setup? Well, there are kind of two parallel stories running through it. You mentioned an unsolved case that's hanging over the chief inspector's head. Um, that's 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 what we start with. We actually start on Christmas Eve at the uh, uh, Surete, the Quebec Police Force headquarters. And we have Chief Inspector Armand Gamache staring forlornly out the uh, office window, wondering, What's what's gone wrong? How how did things get this bad? And what I mean is that so many families have taken to the streets and are protesting mm. the disappearance. And this is a case in real life, sadly, where you have thousands of young women and girls, uh, young Indigenous women and girls in in Canada, whose disappearance have has got or, or, or even killings mm. have gone unsolved. Um, so that's where we start with, and we see that you know. We, we get an idea of who the chief inspector is because he's kind of keeping his distance at the beginning but as soon as he sees some police brutality in the crowd he's straight out mm. there and he's telling his you know his, his colleagues to get off these women and leave them alone and he makes a promise to one family there and then that he didn't really know much about the individual cases but he's struck by one, one family story and he says I'm going to basically make a promise to you to help find your missing daughter and this daughter is Missy Two Rivers is, is she this, the, Missy Two Rivers is, is the mum she's portrayed, the mum yes portrayed by Crystal Lightning and her uh, daughter uh, Blue has been missing for 13 months and he right. says he'll look into it well here is and it's, uh, you talked about looking forlornly out the window nobody can look forlornly out the window the way Alfred Molina can That's right, I'm yeah. guessing in this, in this series well here he is then uh, as the Gamash the inspector speaking to the family of Blue the girl who has gone missing did she go missing from your community from Yodanaduni no she got a ride and never came home Who's dealing with your case? No one's dealing with our case. And no one ever will. Blue's been missing 13 months and 11 days. Peacekeepers thought she ran away, so they asked SQ for help nine months ago. We're still waiting. How old is Blue? 18. You don't think she's run away? Blue would never leave Pearl. Pearl is Blue's daughter. She loved her more than anything. 
So there we heard uh, Isabel DeRoy Olsen as Cara Two Rivers, who's the sister of the missing girl. That's right. Yeah. And then um, Chris Lightning as Missy Two Rivers, who's the mother of, yes. of the missing girl. And you were saying as we were listening to that clip, Chris Wasser speaking to us about Three Pines, the new Prime video series uh, that, that we've seen two episodes of at this stage. As we were listening to that, Chris, you said to me, it starts there. It starts there and then it ends up all the way over in, a, in another place entirely. Um, so because uh, Alfred Molina's Chief Inspector Armand Gamache, because he interfered in the protest, uh, there might be something there that he shouldn't have interfered with. Uh, he's punished by his bosses. So he goes home for Christmas Day and he has Christmas with his friends and his family. But on Boxing Day, something happens in the and nearby... And you're saying Boxing Week before they all start. You're that, saying Boxing, I'm saying Boxing Day because that's how Canada. it's known here. Exactly. Yeah. Yes, I should have known that that might start something. It's Boxing Day in Canada <laughs> and uh, something has happened in down the road in a cosy, chilly town called Tree Pines. Uh, it's it's kind of, you know, they I think the locals there like to, like to think that it's the most idyllic place on earth and everybody knows everyone and nobody's a troublemaker. But at a curling day or at a curling match on Boxing Day, um, a, a local socialite who nobody really likes that much, her name is C.C. De Poitier, mm. uh, she is about to launch a book. Uh, she is cheating on her husband. She has just, she's annoyed everybody in town but that doesn't mean that she deserves to be electrocuted on the sideline of this curling match in broad daylight so Armand Gamash and his team we have uh, Gamash himself he's a very compassionate fellow yeah. he's not the sort of uh, uh, you know grizzled and grumpy TV detective that we've come to you know to, to expect from these kinds of series he gathers a team and he's actually sent over to Tree Points to investigate this case at first sight you're thinking this is an accident a freak accident but no Armand Gamash takes a closer look yeah. and realises this is the perfect murder I'm not going to try and, and here he is then with his colleague Jean-Guy Beauvoir, uh, Rosie Sutherland there, and Sergeant Lacoste, played by El Maya Tailfeathers. Uh, they arrive at the scene of this fatal electrocution and Agent Nicole is going to brief them on what she thinks might have happened. Not a good starting point for a detective. Agent Nicole, why don't you walk us through what you have so far? Uh, okay, yep. Uh, uh, follow me. Um, victim was Sissy de Poitiers. She was watching a curling match when she collapsed in front of the whole village, pretty much. Not that anyone saw a thing. Oh, you, you spoke to our witnesses? Uh, just to get names and addresses, but people around here sure like to talk. And no one saw anything suspicious? Not a thing. One minute she's sitting in the chair, next she's dead. Electrocuted right here in the middle of a curling match. A local woman tried to revive her, Ruth uh, something. I should have written it down. Yeah, that would have been helpful. So it, it looks like it was just a freak accident. Sorry to bring you all the way out here for nothing. You sure it's nothing? Uh, well, she was electrocuted, so... Hmm. Every mistake I ever made was because I made an assumption and then I acted upon it as if it were fact. It's very dangerous. Sometimes I think we should have tattooed on the back of whichever hand we use to write or shoot. I might be wrong. <laughs> Alfred Molina there. <laughs> he's, he's having a bit of fun. You were saying um, that Agent Nicole played by Sarah Booth. Yeah. You, you'll follow a series if, if Agent Nicole is if at the heart of it. The whole Chris. show was just about Agent Nicole learning from her, stake, or learning from her mistakes. I'd watch it. She's fantastic mm. here. And I like the fact that his team, you do have a grumpy cynic on the team. You also have a charming protege. And then you have this over-enthusiastic rookie who, who knows of Gamash. You know, he's sort of, even in this, he's sort of kind of, you know, oh, he's the pyro of Chief yeah. Inspectors. Um, and, but and then 
she wants want to impress to, him. Yeah, but he will write down the name of the person you spoke She'd to. She'd want would to be do step that, yeah. one. Yeah. Really, wouldn't it? In that particular... How much French do we get in this? She had a, there's a touch of a French there accent is, in the way she's speaking there. There yeah. is. We flip back and forth. So there's a lovely musicality to it. Uh, the way the characters just kind of flip between mm. English and, uh, and French. Uh, so, that, so that's quite a nice... And also kind of, you know, authentic in terms of, you know, the yeah, area and reality, the people yeah. from here. This, for me, was a, a, a playful uh, uh, mixture of, you know, sort of... T- we're in Twin Peaks territory a little bit. Yeah, funny, also, I was thinking that because we were talking about it earlier in the programme. It yeah. does sound like... And Three Pines sounds as if it's a little nod towards to it Twin is, Peaks. It is, it is. It's sort of this cross between Twin Peaks and Fargo with a little bit of Agatha Christie thrown in and just maybe a shade of True Detective. And and these comparisons are obvious, but they're, you know, they're, they're unavoidable mm. because look at that title, look at the setting, and then also look at the oddball ensemble of supporting players you have around them because the more time that Armand Gamache spends in the town, he gets to know the people and he gets to know that there are some very quirky characters in here and one of I mean for, for instance one of the most famous uh, 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 citizens of this town is a poet who is let's just say not how she used to be and now carries around the duck as a sort of uh, as a sort of a best friend yeah. as her companion and you're immediately thinking of the log lady from Twin Peaks uh, so there are similarities yeah. there and what about um, you, you mentioned the treatment of the indigenous women yes. and, and the reality does, does the story come back to there and is that fleshed that out runs, properly for us that runs all the way through it it's mm. sort of it's basically Gamash as every detective or inspector has to have this it's the case that isn't solved so that runs all the way through it sometimes it does feel like that and the murder mystery are two different types of shows wrestling for attention but I will say Alfred Molina is brilliant here and he is Sean, I know it sounds kind of funny. He's exactly the sort of detective you'd want, saw, uh, you know, investigating your murder. He's quite compassionate. He's been on this job and for years, right. and he's seen the worst of humanity, but he's never lost his own, and that and that makes him I a very likable character. I don't want any detective doing that, though. I, no, I, mean, no, I should say that, <laughs> but but he's a very good guy. It's not just yeah. another job. Yeah, he cares absolutely. about the people, and that so makes him very worth, interesting. This is worth watching. I enjoyed yeah. it a lot. Yeah, episodes I hope that the two storylines eventually find the rhythm that yeah. suits them. But it, but Alfred is great in it. That's uh, episodes one and two of Three Pounds now streaming on Prime Video. Two additional. Additional episodes will arrive every Friday through December with the final premiering on December 23rd, ahead of Christmas. Of course, sad news uh, today, uh, Chris, also in the death of Kirsty Alley, TV and film star known, I suppose, mostly for her roles in Cheers, but also Veronica's Closet and Look Who's Talking, died at the age of 71. Will it always be Cheers that people will remember, do you think? Uh, I think for, so. Because she took over I think so. the role here. She did, yes. And it's uncommon, it's unheard of for, for, for an actor to step in. I mean, she she wasn't replacing Shelley Long in the sense that she was coming in and playing her character. It was a case that Shelley Long, after five or six years, mm. thought, you know, I'm going to go off and, and, and star in films. So the creators of Cheers were left with a, a huge problem. Like, how do we fill this hole? Because for many, you know, the centerpiece of Cheers was Ted uh, Danson's yeah. character and Shelley Long's, and, you know, they're, they're kind of, you know, they're turbulent and tumultuous romance. Um, but they decided to do something different. They brought in Kirstie Alley, you know, who was a relative unknown. People would have seen her in Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. That was about it for, for as far as, yeah. you know, recognizing Kirstie Alley on screen. And they just did something different with her. They immediately noticed that, okay, it's not going to be the same as Shelley and Ted. Let's do something different. And she made the character her own and she continued to make the show a hit. Yeah, well, let's listen to a clip that features her as Rebecca in Cheers <laughs> negotiating with Sam, played by Ted Danson. And this is about uh, the removal of his picture from the bar, uh, the wall of the bar. I want this nonsense with my picture to stop. I did you a favour by hiring you back and this is not a very nice way to repay me. You're right. You did do me a favour and now I'm going to do you one. I'm going to give you a tip on how to deal with people who work for you. Lighten up a little bit. I mean, you got to make some compromises. I see. You want me to hang your picture back out? Right. Done. Whoa, 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 whoa. That was easy. Wait, uh, 
Let's try some more compromises here. Um, I want to sleep with you 25 times, but you don't want to sleep with me at all, am I right? Right. Okay, so what's half of 25? Your IQ. Perfect put down, Kirsty Alley as Rebecca in cheers there. Briefly, um, Chris, other standout moments, 10 seconds of, of her career? I think probably the first look who's talking, the less said about the sequels, the better. Uh, Veronica's clauses could be a little bit under, underappreciated at times. It had its moments. Uh, Kirsty Alley's big thing, I think, going into her later career was that she felt a little bit shunned because of her politics, because she was a Scientologist, because she supported Trump. I think maybe it was a little bit difficult to you know, have a sitcom uh, star as, as a movie star. So there might have been that in it, that we were always going to see Kirsty Alley not as, you know, an actress, but just as, you know, the sitcom star. Um, but look, regardless of her politics and of her religion and her beliefs, uh, she was a gifted comedic actress with perfect timing and will always be remembered for a, a triumphant yeah. role in, in, in the US and sitcom history. You, as you said to me before we came to where Jamie Lee Curtis said, we agreed to differ on politics. That's it, yeah. She was a great actor. Yeah, okay. That's uh, Kirstie Alley, whose death we heard about today. And that